0: welcome 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 how's everybody doing hope you are doing well my name is Andrew Kuhn from focus compounding on air live with mr. Jeff Gannon Jeff how's it going
1: today it's going very well Andrew how's it going with you
0: it's going great we hope it's going great with everybody else as well if this is the first time you're tuning in with us thank you so much for joining us be sure to check out all of our content that we put out there on the internet the best place to get access to all that is to go to focuscompounding.com. Or follow me on twitter at focused compound uh, we put out a lot of content and our main source of distribution is through twitter so follow me on twitter at, at focus compound all the information is in the description if you're watching this on youtube or spotify or listening to this on youtube or spotify either or um, make sure you hit that subscribe button And of course, check the description box to get access to the presentation that we go over and use as our guide for the podcast. Uh, Download it, send it to your friends. Be sure to check it out and to get access to that, just go in that description and click that Google Drive link. So about us, Focus Compounding, we are a investment advisor. Um, We are a long-only equity-focused hedge fund uh, based in Dallas, Texas, and we are Focus on identifying high quality companies in pockets of the market where large pools of capital, i.e., mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds, cannot or will not invest. If you've been following us for some time, you know all this information. I won't get too in the weeds with that. You could check it in the presentation. But uh, investment minimum for the fund, $2 bucks. no management fee, incentive fee, 15% of the profits with a high watermark, um, and then managed accounts for individuals that don't qualify. For the hedge fund, Um, a $250,000 minimum with a 2.5% management fee, 0% incentive fee, no high watermark, and daily liquidity. So, pros and cons between both products, there are some similarities, there are some differences. Uh, So, reach out to me at Andrew Focus Compounding if you're interested in learning about our money management services. So, today, Jeff, September 13th, 2022, we can hit on the markets really quickly go over a topic, and then spend some time going over the snap judgments that we did not get to last week in the podcast. Uh, S&P 500 down about 16% year to date. 10-year yields, 3.435%. Crude oil, 87 bucks. Natural gas, $8.30. The big news that has come out this morning is on inflation. Uh, The Consumer Price Index increased 0.1 percent from July uh, after no change in the prior month Uh, from a year earlier prices have climbed 8.3 percent which is a slight deceleration and that's largely due to recent declines in gasoline prices Uh, core CPI which strips out the food and energy costs which is interestingly the two uh, costs that affect the average person the most Uh, advanced 0.6 percent from july and 6.3 percent from a year ago uh, which is the first acceleration in six months on an annual basis so news of that came out yield started to rise markets are currently selling off i think the nasdaq's down about three and a half percent the SP 500 is down about three percent um so jeff i mean i guess no surprise to anyone inflation doesn't seem to be slowing down as much right
1: well headline inflation the consumer price index is um slowing down a lot and consumers may feel a lot better because of seeing lower uh, lower gas prices which is a price that's very Mm -hmm. um visible to them right whereas a lot of uh, other prices aren't so visible like i usually say you know i'd look at something like the um sticky price inflation which is pretty similar to something like core CPI um, because I don't think that changes in, I mean, I don't even think changes in most goods prices are that important and certainly changes in, in energy and food away from home and things like that, uh, food at home and things like that are, um, they're very volatile. So you get a big increase in it and then you get a big decrease. The problem is basically like locally provided services, things um, and those reflect more the actual labor issues and things that are a little harder to fix without uh, recession um even with the goods price stuff, uh the u s imports a lot of goods, so that confuses that issue too. um so I think services is more the issue usually uh to look at, although like I said, um, you know, if we're talking about beer at a bar or a cup of coffee or something like that then i think that's a pretty good indicator of what inflation will look like um going forward and that's the difference with like the sticky price stuff versus what we're talking about food is an important thing for people uh, but it's extremely volatile um so it gets repriced very fast and so you can see the price per pound of meats that you buy um eggs milk those things that will change by a lot and in fact i think that's one of the reasons why people pay more attention to gas prices is because people aren't even aware exactly what they are spending for different prices of meats and things like that they're not quite aware that they're spending um so much more than the year before or that it comes down and they're paying so much less the same way that if they do something in their home they're not really sure how much exactly they're paying for like lumber they just know when it's up a lot or down a lot i think Logically, something like sticky price makes more sense because of what the prices mean. Uh, this gets into the issue of like what exactly we're trying to measure when we talk about inflation. If you're trying to measure people's cost of living, which is fine, um, then you know something like CPI makes a lot of sense. But if you're trying to do something like set interest rates, or let's say we're investing and we try to predict what inflation will be over the long term in the future, I don't think CPI is helpful. It's the same way that I don't think that the um, Fed funds rate at any one moment in time helps you predict what it'll be 10 or 15 years from now. It might help you predict what it'll be in a year, but it's not really a good judge of what a normal level will be. The sticky price thing is because those are prices that I think it has more meaning. I think it even has more meaning than inflation expectations, to be honest, Um, in that people would not businesses would not change those prices and consumers would not accept those price changes unless they understood that it was on an ongoing basis. Um, so you'd be more reluctant to make those changes. So they are price changes that aren't given back overall inflation. Generally, you know, in the modern central banking era uh, is something that doesn't then get given back ever in terms of deflation across the whole economy. But there are things that do deflate in price. Um, And then there are other things that really never do. And I think that if you're adjusting the price of your, um, if you're adjusting the price of say like a cup of coffee at Starbucks or something like that, then you're expecting to, you wouldn't make that change unless you expected that you would need to continue, uh, to have that price change in the future that that reflects your expectations about the future, both what you can price things at and what you, the whole structure of your costs are. Otherwise you would just eat a cost for a short period of time. So what I mean by that is like, say your Hanes brands or something. Um, it's more important that you've changed the price of some um, good that's purchased real regularly, um, a t-shirt underwear, whatever, versus the price that you're paying in terms of the cotton content of what you're using, because if you didn't think you could pass on that cost, then you would just, um, experience worse margins for a little while. But if you do think that you have to do this for the long term, then you adjust the price. So some things move around a lot, but some other things do not. And I think the things that do not move around a lot in price, um, are more, much more important in terms of giving us an idea of what the future of pricing in the economy will look like generally. Um, uh, the other factors are important, but I think they're more important from a cyclical perspective. So if you're seeing like um, prices of certain goods falling a lot, that may just give you more of an indication that there's too much supply, not enough demand. It may give you indications of trade things between countries, if that's where they're getting it from. Um, so I think... Yeah, it tells you a lot about the economy, sure, but I, I don't think that's necessarily what you're trying to, either us as investors, thinking about it, or even when we talk about the Fed, that their main worry should be about exactly where you are cyclically. I think it is a concern for them and that they would prefer not to have recessions. They would try to avoid every recession that they could. Um, So from that perspective, it, it matters. But... I mean, as investors, we just figure that there will be recessions. Sometimes there will be cyclically difficult points in terms of supply and demand, where there's too much demand or too much supply. But the issue is more, is inflation going to average 2% for a long period of time, 4%, whatever. That's more the kind of thing that matters in making long-term investment decisions. And I think the sticky price stuff is better at getting at that.
0: What are some items that are uh, in that sticky
1: category that don't move around as much as you know other items that people track? So, a good example, so, I mean, I think it doesn't, I, my guess as of now, I haven't checked exactly, is that core CPI is very, very close. They're both right around 6%. So, I think it does not matter um, which one you measure. There are some, why I like using something like sticky price inflation is that um, I always, when looking at these things, look at the release of the CPI in terms of each category and what's going on with it the The information that gets put out is just excluding food and energy. That There are reasons to exclude food and energy, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense in some ways. So, for instance, um, let's say your average consumer. The po- point I was trying to make about, say, the cyclical issue, that you're getting something that's cyclical and that is a cost-of-living issue, but is not very reliable for your long-term planning, would be gasoline prices. So, the price of the pump, is going to have an immediate effect on you, but you can't make any long-term planning based on it. However, you are also paying for electricity costs. Those are stickier. And those are going to matter a lot more for you in terms of planning for the future and what you're going to do, both for you and for businesses. Now, depending on what plans you have, they may be pretty variable, but they're not going to be as variable as gas prices, as, as gasoline prices. So, the other thing would be food. You can plan based on uh, what a meal at a restaurant costs. But you can't really plan based on what um, the cost per pound of beef or chicken or uh, cost of eggs or something like that is, because those things are going to move around a lot in price and even move around a lot in price versus each other. So, uh, but, but the price of meals at a restaurant will not vary that much uh, that dramatically. And so you can make plans sort of based on that or on delivery uh, or any of those things. So I think... Those kinds of things change in price a lot slower. I mean you can see that obviously restaurants change their menu prices a lot slower than grocery stores change their prices so that's one example but also um, there's you know examples in in other categories the same thing um the so it's more of the breakdown on the category by category level. The other thing that I'm somewhat more not sure about using in some of these calculations is um, I think that things that are purchased in cash um, and that have sticky prices are probably the best. I think that when you introduce things that are bought on credit, uh, almost entirely on credit, I think that can add confusion Um because when you, and we see that sometimes when there's shifts in government policy, availability of credit, things like that, I don't know if that's as honest a indicator of long-term expectations of the price. Again, it could be more like a cyclical sort of thing. Um, so, a lot of stuff that we see with like housing um, is going to be affected by that. But anyway, so so housing, cars, education, and medical. Um, are all going to be affected by things that I think could sometimes be a little different than if people had to pay for something in cash every day. So the ideal thing would be, let's say that you are uh, an everyday coffee drinker or something. That kind of price, I think, is really a good indicator because you're paying in cash every day for something and you kind of are expecting that price to stay exactly the same. And when it moves, it's probably not going to ever move back. I think that's usually the best kind of price to look at. Um, and then when you look at actual CPI stuff, just I would read each and every category because sometimes um, that's more helpful in understanding things for investors is what's going on in each category and um, what that means for the companies that you own or that you're looking at.
0: Well said. Well said. So dealing with volatility um, and then we'll jump into the snap judgments. So obviously the stock market has experienced a lot of downside volatility in 2022 I had to add downside Jeff because um, people don't talk about volatility to the upside of Mm -hmm. course Um, and that may seem abnormal right it's been an interesting year like I said markets are down about 18 percent where we stand here today Um, but is that you know not normal right or is that abnormal because the many months that led up to 2022 were just as abnormal in a different way and of course this is the way that people don't ever talk about uh, the market moved upwards and when we're talking about the market obviously the sp500 and on a Schiller pe basis the stock market has been getting more and more expensive basically since about mid 2009 mm-hmm. and you know when you talk about like abnormal I think a lot of this just puts things into perspective, right? So you see the Schiller PE we currently sit at about 29 times. This is the PE that Jeff looks at when he looks at the overall market. I mean, a normal PE is about, you know, 15 to 16 times. Um, Whenever Jeff and I talk about normal valuations, it's always 15 times. And the point I'm trying to make is that things have been very abnormal this year on volatility to the downside. But of course, in 2021... Things are very abnormal to the upside as well. The market from top to bottom never even fell, even 10%. So there's nothing wrong with a stock market or a stock that is suddenly a lot more expensive. Sometimes it's well-deserved. And from the market market bottom in 2009, it was not unusual for investors' portfolio to have gained about 50% over the next 12 months. I think 2009 was actually one of your best years. Uh, It was a top year for you as well. And you had said that you were turning over your portfolio a lot because Mm -hmm. a lot of the names that you purchased became more expensive and other things were getting super cheap. So you were turning over. Would you say that year was the most amount of turnover you've ever had in a year? Yes. Yeah. So Jeff has said that he looks for stocks that are trading for two thirds of his appraisal value. And when there are moments of volatility is a good time to be able to Take advantage of that. How are you typically thinking about the current volatility that we're seeing? How do you think about that as you're looking at new stocks? What are you currently seeing? And is it a good time, do you think, to be looking for new names?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the more volatile things are, the better time it is to look for stocks that you could sell and buy other stocks um, because the relative price changes is an advantage for you. Um, I don't think that's particularly volatile in terms of prices right now versus underlying business uh, earnings and things like that. I actually think the volatility in the price is kind of low recently, Um, although earlier in the year it was a lot higher. But so like changes in the valuation versus what you might think the intrinsic value is um, hasn't been huge recently, but it was big earlier in the year. But a lot of it's correlated and so what you the uncorrelated volatility is more useful to you as an investor obviously if you have some stocks going up in your portfolio at the same time that some are going down that's the most useful
0: now what about if you i mean every investor should look at every stock that they own in their portfolio right and i think it's good to ask like why are the stocks that you own down There's a big difference between owning a stock that's down because you overpaid, right, from a valuation perspective, versus stocks just being down because, you know, stocks are being sold off and your stock is getting looped in with that. Um, If you were looking at your own portfolio right now Mm -hmm. and trying to analyze or ask the question, why are your stocks down? What are some things that would make you worried Would you be sort of looking at things and be like, okay, maybe I overpaid or maybe the business quality wasn't as good at this point? Would you be selling and kind of shuffling the deck around? I just always want to bring it back to the individual investor Mm -hmm. and what they could be thinking about. So what would you be doing if you were looking at your own portfolio today and, and trying to almost psychoanalyze why your stocks
1: are down? Well, I think the main reason why some would be down more than others is because expectations are for earnings to decline in the next year to two years or the next quarter to two years. Um, I think that's the biggest reason why a specific stock really is down a lot versus others. Sometimes there are other reasons, but that's a very common reason. Um, that And so it's really common right now where people are looking at the uh, cyclical situation that they're in. So things that they expect would... That they can predict pretty easily are going to have lower earnings for a while um would be things that they might avoid that they might want to get out of that and into something else um uh, generally people don't like to own stocks that they know the earnings are going to be down in the near future even if they're still very cheap assuming that decline mm-hmm.
0: got it cool so to get access to that presentation it is a little bit more wordier uh, than i wanted it to be uh go into the description and download that but in today's podcast like i said last week we are going to continue on with uh snap judgments i wanted to dedicate as much time as possible since we did not get to it last week and there are 93 uh different um uh, tweets that have of course a bunch of different stocks in there so Probably have over a 100 different stocks, but we'll work through as many as possible and see where we end up. Uh, so, the first stock, I don't know if we could, let's go with one that uh, is one that we would be interested in MBIN. Let's see what stock that is. MBIN, Merchants Bank Corp. Uh, he says best performing bank in the US 2021 by SP Global. Mortgage warehousing is a major business line. Which is forty percent of revenues and it's trading at a PE of five. Okay. Have you ever looked at this company?
1: I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um no. I can see. Look at that return on equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Carmel, uh, Indiana. Yeah. So there's some other companies that have similar names, but there's lots of banks with similar names, so you have to be careful about that. Um uh, okay. So we have a description of the business, um, and some things are a little different than usual. Um, okay, like what? Well, this segment also offers customized loan products for independent living, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing projects. That that means those are um, uh, assisted living facilities, old folks homes, whatever you want to call those things. Um, that's what all of those mean together. Um, it's a syndicator of low-income housing tax credits. Okay, mortgage warehousing, which is what was mentioned in in um the tweet. Um, okay, so we have a lot of multifamily. There's a little other stuff they mentioned, but they it could. It's also probably related. Some of that stuff is probably related to multifamily. Um. So there's a few things that I mentioned that aren't multifamily or single family, but basically we're talking about residential because it also mentions another segment, which does single family mortgage lending, construction and bridge and lot financing, first lien home equity loans of credit. Um, so this is all tied to housing, um, although some a lot of it looks like it's mentioning multifamily instead of single family. Um, even when it gives the description in the beginning, it says the company operates through multifamily mortgage banking, mortgage, warehousing, and banking segments. So that's consistent with what we see on the net interest margin. Um, and I think, um, this would probably be, we'd have to look at the call report or, um, Something like that, because we're not even gonna get it from something like the balance sheet. But this would probably be one of the banks that people would be most worried about now. Um, because it would be earning high returns, but probably taking a lot of duration risk. Um the loans to deposits that you see here, as of shown in this quick FS thing, is a hundred percent over a hundred percent. So it basically looks like a thrift that way. Um, however, assets to equity has come down, uh, you know, earning assets to equity has come down a lot. So possibly it's financed with a lot of short-term deposits and is very efficient. Um, and then I'm guessing on that because we can see the net interest margin, we can see the returns, the net interest margin is pretty low and yet the return on assets is pretty high. Um, so it has to be pretty efficient in terms of non-interest stuff. Um very high returns. You know, banks generally don't have returns this high for most recent years. Uh and then also you have very rapid growth too. Um, so that would be my guess is that it's mostly concerned with the changes in interest rates that we have there. We could probably see from a chart. Can you get a chart on this bank so we can see if it did well last year and badly this year? Um which would be more of what we'd expect. Yeah. So the Fed probably what last November or something. I don't know exactly, but there was, you know what we could date it to, but where they would have been. Yeah. So this doesn't have a long public history. I was going to say, can we see like a two year chart or something like that to see if there's anything? Sure. Um, Yeah, no, there isn't a big reaction. Um, There's some, but it's not a lot bigger than other banks. So I'd actually say it's been pretty consistently cheap in the past too um so obviously it has high returns um so if things could continue as they were in the past then it'd be worth a lot more than what it trades at i mean you can see what is it two point uh low two percent uh return on assets you leverage that up ten times you're buying something at book value that's you know 20 20 to- percent return on equity or something like that um so I-, I would just think that it's probably what's in the portfolio that would be what would be concerning to people but there could be other reasons i don't know so some next steps
0: you would take is to dive into the call reports uh see exactly what they're doing um and then from there would it be learning about like management the culture um, well sort of their thoughts towards lending their thoughts towards
1: risk stuff like that yeah actually if you scroll down a little bit there we might be able to see a recent uh yeah if you click on the merchants bank or reports second quarter 2022 results. I'd look at that right away to try to get a familiarity with a company like this and see what it says. So if you just hold it there, I can look over. Okay. So here's one of the issues which is what we were expecting. Total assets of 11.1 billion increased 15% compared to March 31st 2022 and decreased 2% compared to March 31st 2021. Um so that's interesting. Net interest margin, okay. Um, what's the? Let's see, tangible book guy. Okay. So as you expected, credit quality remains strong. Um, yeah, the company completed two hundred fourteen million dollar commercial mortgage backed security securitization of fourteen, multifamily mortgage loans. Um, so obviously one concern could be that like what we we're talking about with the mortgage warehousing thing. Could be that they're not gonna that there'd be trouble securitizing some things um, in the way that they had before. Uh, yeah, they talk about their efficiency ratios, thirty percent, which is a very good efficiency ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we talked about, it's basically you know you're you're dealing with something that's basically tied to mortgages here and um, multifamily, um, which are probably the th- I would guess the area that investors most want to avoid right now that is that that you're going to get the lowest multiples on things that are doing mortgage lending for multifamily right now Uh, i would think that that's got to be the lowest i'm familiar with a bunch of companies that are pretty good in that area and they're all have pretty low PEs, not necessarily as low as this one why is that Mm, well there's a few reasons one i mean they're carrying things on their books that are worth i mean they're they're marking them, but they're they're worth less than they were before because you have these longer term loans that are um uh that are now versus you know other things that you could get in the market not weren't at originally attractive uh yields, so basically if these were bonds or something they'd be showing large losses now smaller banks don't report that as if they're having losses in the current period, they do report it and warning you that like tangible book value change and stuff. So for instance, well, this gives an example. It says their tangible book value was up 5% in the quarter, but some of them will mention the tangible book value is down. For instance, um, the other issue, it gets more complicated, but the, um, mortgage, uh, mortgages are very complicated in that the actual structure of what you're going to, the, the cash flows that you're going to get off of them um, and what they turn out to be is going to be determined by market forces, even not including, uh, like I said, changes in price because of other things have also changed in price. So like if you have a bond, um, let's say, you know, the simplest way is like there's a bond issued and it can't be, imagine that was there was a bond and it can't be called and, um, uh you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out as investors do in stocks usually you're you're kind of looking at it as if it's going to have a certain life until it matures uh no matter what um mortgage things aren't going to be like that and so they get very complicated that way um uh for example like when we talk about the fed and quantitative tightening and all that it actually the the speed at which they tighten um they have something where they can adjust to this a little bit, I guess, in their plans. But um, it, the the actual amount of tightening will depend in part on uh, how things are paid back and refinanced. Um, so, like, if mortgages stay out longer, which may happen in some cases, um, then you're going to have a, a different... Um, uh, but then you're going to end up ho- holding the uh, mortgages that you already have for longer without getting cash back on them. Um, Mortgages are just very complex that way. So I don't think that's a big issue in what we're discussing about this bank. I just think it's something that people have to always be careful about. You don't know. uh, Like when we talk about title insurance, for instance, I think that some of the safety historically in title insurance has been that there's a new mortgage on the same property pretty quickly. Um, If you had a period in which interest rates were higher all the time and prices lower, then I think that there could be larger losses in title insurance than there have been in the past um, because it basically refreshes their risks that way um, without keeping these are really old uh, there. And yet um, it's because you're, say you're doing a 30 year mortgage or something. The chances that it'll actually be 30 years are not very high. Um, so that's because of paying off early refinancing stuff. like right, that, But they're impossible to predict. So you can try to model it out, but it's just, it's not possible to predict it. So, um, and when you do mortgage stuff, obviously it's always in favor, I mean, mortgages that you could get in your house, for instance, if you're listening to this, um, is always in favor of the borrower. So whatever you choose to do will harm the lender. So if it turns out that you got a particularly good rate, you'll choose not to refinance, which will hurt the lender by locking them into a rate that's worse than they could get in the market right now. If you choose to refinance, you'll be refinancing because you've gotten a lower rate and they would have rather that you didn't refinance. So. Always, what you're doing is is uh, exercising an option, really, that's against the lender. Um, so that's just something to think about with mortgages. In terms of this particular company, I can't evaluate it. It is interesting to know how quickly they've grown, which must be due to what we're talking about with the securitization and all of that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that stands out to you on the balance sheet? Um, yeah, the growth the 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 growth. Yeah, I mean it's grown far beyond anything that we would ever be able to evaluate. Yeah.
0: So, assets in 2015 for people listening were 2.2 2 billion and in 2021 they were 11.2 billion. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and then deposits have grown from 2 billion, um, yeah, 2 billion in 2015 uh to 8.9 billion in 2021. Shareholders' equity on the other hand's gone from 148 million to 1.155 billion
1: as well right and so it seems like in the last three uh last four years or so they tripled or something and that that was actually accomplished without a lot of um recapitalization of the business although they also issued a lot of preferred stock as you can see there so if you look you can see that they're um issued a bunch of common stock earlier on you see common stock from 20 million to 135 million but you also see that the preferred went from 42 million all the way up to 362 million there's some logical reasons why a bank would issue preferred stock um, even if the um, terms aren't terribly favorable for them but uh, the amount of it here seems large in both of those cases um, although much of this financing has come from of the balance sheet growth has come from retained earnings uh you know just in that over that same period about four hundred million of it. Although, you know, three hundred million came from preferred stock and a bunch of common stock too. Um we can look at income statements so you can see what I mean. Um if we look at like shares, diluted shares, you can see that they increased. Um so they increased by I don't know exactly what that is, but more than 25% um for instance. So that's very rapid growth, just overall it's had very rapid growth it's a, it's a, the earnings have grown faster than other things, but if we look at the balance sheet again, we can see um, you know you have um items like the total assets, for instance, growing at pretty high rates um you know uh in very recent well no in almost all periods they're growing faster than I would necessarily feel comfortable analyzing and if you know um they have key ratios and why is that i don't know that i would be able to analyze something growing faster than 20 percent a year um it, it's probably happened with some companies that it, it's okay for a long period of time but if you maintain a growth rate of 20 percent a year for three years or more or something it'd be hard for, really hard for me to evaluate so much of the things that you're doing are very recent it's hard to evaluate things that are very recent there um There's not a great history, I think, of financial institutions, uh, insurers, or banks uh, going at rates of 20% or higher for meaningful periods of time. So that would also be a difficult part of it. But if it's lumpy, so you have 20% for one year or two years in a row, and then you contract it other times and and things like that, it's not necessarily a problem. Even if you look at the history of Berkshire or something in their insurance things, they've probably grown at 20% a year for five years or something, but then they'll grow at nothing or contract for a little while. Um, yeah if we look at key ratios I guess it'll have the growth um, rates so we can see yeah year over year growth and we could use like gross loans uh, earning assets is the easiest total assets earning assets should be really really close they are so you can see 19% 25% 14, 66, 52 17 so the issue mainly there is the 66% and 52% is just very hard to evaluate um, something that grew that fast so and that period was what twenty 2020, twenty 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 one or 2019 2020 2019 2020 yeah. 2019 2020 yeah yeah so um yeah it's just it's, this is probably something that i can't evaluate to be honest but do you have a preference to banks that securitize assets
0: um like their loans versus ones that don't i mean do you have any general thoughts on that as a business model for a bank that is doing a lot of lending.
1: Yeah, I generally prefer that they don't they're not on either side of securitizing with anything. I mean, Carmart started securitizing and stuff. But uh yeah, if if I had my preference, I would prefer that they don't participate in loans um done by others or buy things that are made by other banks. Um and that they don't uh themselves securitize things and sell on to others. I would rather that they create loans to keep on their own books basically um that would be my preference is that from like an incentives perspective
0: where a bank if they're gonna have to keep it on their own books their own loan they're gonna eat what they kill they're probably be much more thoughtful in theory about the types of loans that they're making
1: uh yeah but i mean then the argument against that is well what does it really matter what loans you're making because you're passing them on to other people so you're taking less risk you know same with an insurance thing or something let's say you make a lot of um uh you underwrite a lot, but then you pass off a lot onto reinsurers, you seed a lot of business and stuff like that. Um I I am not um I, I don't know how much of the business in cases where we're talking about where you are securitizing stuff is as lasting so it could be more temporary that way because you just have to do a higher volume of business overall i mean we could get into like the math behind this but basically the easiest way to grow your balance sheet over time um and grow your business over time with the banking stuff would be let's say you're making very long term loans and they're large ones and then you're holding them yourself um in terms of how much interest income you're going to get over time in terms of how much of your balance sheet that takes up, that's going to on average take up a lot over a long period of time because not that much of it is coming back to you uh, each year. So it's just more sustainable that way in terms of a smaller volume that you have to do. If you're, doing a, uh, if you're doing more stuff that isn't being kept on your balance sheet for long, and it doesn't have to be securitizing and stuff, it could just be things that are being paid back very rapidly too, um, then obviously you have to do a really, really high volume of business relative to the actual balance sheet that we're seeing. So the actual amount of transactions and stuff is going to be pretty high. The actual number of loans that you're making and all of that is going to be really high. Um, This bank obviously has terrific returns since over the period that we can look at here. I mean, it, it, you know, has really nice returns on assets and then you leverage that up and you get these really nice returns on equity Um, and it's done it with a very low net interest margin. Um, So everything about that would look really attractive. Um I just don't know that it's something that I could evaluate and uh, you'd have to read about it and learn more. hmm
0: Got it. Okay, let's do this one. whether he would break his 10X sales rule for something like Visa. Let's look at Visa and see where it's currently trading. Uh price of sales, Jeff, fifteen mm-hmm. times. EV to sales fifteen times. Um current PE about thirty times, EV to free cash flow twenty seven times. return on equity numbers obviously very strong 10-year kager numbers and revenue assets for cash flow and eps very strong you look at the gross margins you look at the operating margins the variability or the stability i should say variability very low stability very high this looks like a great business from a bird's eye view um but again back to the whole pricing would you ever break your 10x rule for a company like visa a very dominant entrenched business um and buy it, even though it's trading at fifteen times sales.
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't because it's so large. So here we're talking about a company that's, you know, um pretty big. It has operating profit of what, sixteen billion um in recent years. So to put that in perspective, it's it's not it's a little bit bigger in fact than I think we've talked about like Disney on the podcast than Disney was pre COVID. So they're about the same size, um, in terms of things like operating profit. Obviously the actual size of their business in terms of things like revenue and stuff is much smaller because they have very, very high margins. Um, I also don't know that I'd want to be in this industry. Uh, There's just so much uncertainty with it. So payments uh, industry. Um, So it's a great business. Because of the blockchain? Um, Because I don't know what's going to change in the future. Um, So I would be worried about that with any of these companies. Uh, I'm just not sure. I, I think things will probably work out fine for them in the sense that Let's say I use PayPal or something. Um, you know, aren't I you probably going to use a MasterCard or Visa or American Express or whatever things they partner with on that stuff? It doesn't have much of the same effect. Um, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I really don't know how a lot of these things will work in the future. And that's one part of banking and uh financial stuff generally where there could be a lot of changes over time. So I guess I would worry more about that with this um company. Uh, just that it's it maybe in an industry where the durability and everything wouldn't be as exciting for me. Uh, and then, in terms of the price to sales, no, I would never pay a price to sales that high. Um, just to give you some idea, we could, so, like, if we go back to the overview, um, why you would worry about doing this is that, okay, so revenue, for instance, declined 5% in 2020 relative to 2019 that did not cause that big a change in some items. So for instance, EPS was only down 8%, which is really impressive. Um, the concern obviously would be that over time, if you have decreases in revenue, that those are large decreases in terms of, um, operating profit and things like that. Um, because of the leverage in the business, the operating leverage, um, but you know, it it looks like a good business and everything. No, I would I'd say don't ever pay more than ten times for any business, um, because this requires you just to understand. This requires that you keep almost all of the um the all of the revenue as profit. I mean, that's the only way that this can really work. Um, so yeah, so for instance, Visa that means that you can't. It's been over 10 times sales for nine years. And so I would not buy it in those nine years. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, the cheapest since 2000, uh, you know, over the past 10 years, 2012, whatever it was 8.5 times sales. Um, So you really, I mean, following that rule would have never gotten an opportunity uh, to buy into it. Now, do you think it's hard for people to understand that framework? Because they could say, well, Jeff, let's play the other side. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2012 it had an 89 billion dollar market cap today or i'm sure it's a little less than this because this goes by 2021 year-end whatever it's 478 billion so Mm -hmm. it has still gone up you know a pretty good amount even though you overpaid for uh price of sales are you really just coming at it from the perspective of you know over time this framework works and of course there's going to be either a small set of stocks or large group of stocks or you could say it's because we've had a bull market or whatever um that have still or will still go up even if you pay maybe not 10 times sales but eight times sales i mean because you would never pay even eight times sales for a stock uh probably like 99 percent of the time what are your thoughts on that what would your rebuttal be to that
1: yeah i mean i think you can make money sometimes in stocks by paying amounts that are that high i think the risk is that you'll lose huge amounts of money in those cases in which you buy things that have high price to sales, and I'd be very, very cautious about doing it um cautious on high amounts versus any multiples, but certainly price to sales is a very obvious one um, you know they've bought back stock, they've grown revenue as you can see over the period we're talking about those nine years by a little bit more than a hundred percent um so they've more than doubled it. Other numbers have increased by a lot more. So that's the leverage that you see in the business. Um so I it's a very good business, it's done really well. It's not something that I understand well enough. Um mm-hmm. you know, and I would never pay a price that high, no. Uh because obviously any deterioration in the quality of the business is gonna be extreme that way, you know. Um uh, in terms of the your margins and all of that. But it's not a business that has much in the way of costs over the size of the business that it is. And it seems very dominant in what it does. And it seems very predictable that this kind of thing will continue into the future. So on all that basis, it looks very attractive. Um, I, I wouldn't just as a rule on the price to sales. And I also think I wouldn't just in terms of it's not an industry that I feel like I would understand well enough. And so I'm probably not going to, buy things like paypal visa um american express uh companies like that got it okay let's pick
0: another one px which is p10 holdings we've talked about this or p10 inc i guess now Um, together with its subsidiaries operates as a multi-asset class private market solutions provider in the alternative asset management industry in the united states Uh, As that tweet had mentioned, this company is in our backyard. They are headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Probably hard for us to evaluate just from looking at QuickFS. Currently trading on an EV to sales basis, eight point six times. Ten-year median margins on EBIT, twenty-eight point five times. Revenue's gone from forty-five million in two thousand nineteen to one hundred fifty-one million in two thousand and twenty-one they if i understand their business correctly a huge part of it is acquiring other asset management firms and being thoughtful about how they acquire it basically they're buying the management fee business and i believe they're leaving the performance incentive allocations still on board am i right about that jeff
1: i know you've looked at
0: this company before
1: yeah it's way outside what i would be able to talk about um it's just you know alternative asset management um and investment funds, things like that are just way outside of what I have a understanding of in terms of being able to evaluate them as businesses. I would never be able to do that. So it's just, you know, I mean, we can look at the numbers, but I certainly can't evaluate it as a business or what its future would be. This one would be the people involved with it, the cap allocation, things like that you'd want to learn about and get comfortable with. It's just an industry that I don't think I would ever invest in just because I just have no ability to understand um, where their, you know, future fees are going to be and things like that. So I I really investment management business, we're in it, but it would be hard for me to invest in companies that are in it.
0: Got it. Okay. Let's see. Let's go on to another stock. Let's see. Um, Oops. You said profitable. Yes. We like profitable businesses. Let's pull up this one. Acron Tech, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, small company, market cap 10 million, enterprise value 5 million, so not even a name that we could probably buy, too small. Um let's see. Together with its subsidiaries, develops and sells proprietary software in the United Kingdom, rest of Europe, Africa, North America, Australia and the Asia Pacific. Um uh, Let's see. So it's a technology business. The company off hard to get a good description. Let's see. City Vision multi-vendor contribution system. No idea what that is. Which enables the user to contribute data automatically and simultaneously to various destinations. Mm -hmm. Um, Valuation currently trading eleven times earnings. EBITDA sales one point eight times. Ten-year median margins on EBIT fourteen point seven. Percent um, uh, five times EV to free cash flow. Looking at revenue, uh, we have a ten-year kager of 8.8%. Going from, I guess we should put this in thousands: yeah. 1.4 million in 2012 to 2.9 million in 2021. Gross profit also going up from 1.4 million to 2.9. Uh, well, I guess what is that? Uh, it's the exact same number. So, um, operating profit looks like they've become profitable huh so interesting
1: very stable
0: operating profit once they became profitable mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on it first thoughts
1: yeah so it looks very attractive based on the recent past there's some things that are a little confusing about it and i would need to learn more about The two main things are, it was founded a very long time ago, according to this. It was founded in like 1980 or something. This has data going back to 2002 and shows losses all from then until um, basically around 2015, them starting to turn a profit consistently each year. Um, So how did a company, how could it be that small? As it it shows in the revenue, we're talking about something that this is not pounds i guess so in dollars let's say it's two million dollars or something uh back in 2012 that seems very very small to be um having been in existence for and losing money in some sense for like 15 years or more um this says it was founded way earlier than that um but it does say changed its name in 2009 okay so maybe it was something completely different um and really like slimmed down to one thing um Still, it's a long period of time for that. Now, the record from when they first tipped over into profitability on looks really good. So if you start around, so they lost a small amount of money in 2014. 2015, they tipped into profitability. But 2014, even though they're losing money, basically looks the same as all the years after that. There's some stuff about 2012 and 2013 that looks different. They're growing very rapidly then. You see that they're losing meaningful amounts of money. It's really just that we have like an eight-year record of this company. If that's all the record was, if they were founded in 2014, then this would look really attractive. Um, and actually not that fast growth, right? The fastest growth year that they have was like 13% there. Um, so relatively slow growth, but all the things that I like to see, higher revenue every year, basically, higher gross profit every year, basically. Um, you got a somewhat higher operating profit, and then you have big expansion in operating margin. Now, the really big expansion of the operating margin happened in the last three years or so. But regardless, they were earning high returns on equity throughout that whole period. And if all we had to go on was seeing that um, period, then I would be very interested. Uh, It's just the fact that we know that this company is older, Um that I would want to learn more about like their history. For instance, you can see on the SGNA that it's actually down slightly over 10 years. It's barely down at all, but that would be unusual, right? So that's what I was talking about mm-hmm. like you know, by 2015 we're down to 1.8 million whereas they have been higher by a little bit. I mean, talk about software companies. How many software companies have you, do you know at all that have cut um by in that case, that would be like a 15% or so, 10%, 15% yeah. reduction in sg Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they maintained it over that full period. Um, you can also see that they had losses, supposedly, see, because it says retained earnings and if that balance sheet is right, from the early 2010s that were meaningful, actually very meaningful r- relative to what the company would later earn. So uh, th- that's just trying to figure out what the history of the company was um there are obviously some acquisitions, but they don't look huge they're you know what was left now they could have written this off before, but acquisitions that we see because we see other intangible assets and goodwill showing up on the balance sheet of a few million so um it it has a really good record for the last seven, eight years, and I'd just be curious about what it looked like before then because it seems to have kind of shrunk down from something and then to have gotten a lot better after that and i'd want to know what that is and whether there were uh, changes to the company for different reasons stuff like that uh it has a lot of cash relative to market cap
0: just looking at this from like a top-down view i mean low beta low share turnover lots of cash s g a is basically uh been the same but you know declined but largely the same this kind of looks to me like it's a uh controlled company or something like that maybe like a large shareholder or mm something like that seems to have all the hallmarks of it 5.3 million in cash that was as of the end of 2021
1: uh so 5.6 uh was the peak it looks like yeah total liabilities is 1.8 million um it has really no assets um to speak of if you look the actual invested capital in the business is basically nil because it shows so It shows assets of 8.5 million, but 1.7 million of that is goodwill. And then 5.6 million is cash and equivalents. So that right there gets you to 7.3 million, let's say, Um, which would mean that there's a tiny amount of this other things that are showing up that are showing up as like other assets and accounts receivable, but those are basically all offset by accounts payable. Um, there's also another line of other current liabilities. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but if we assume that that's related to the the business, which probably is, um, then that would more than offset everything that's in the business. There's the tiniest of capital leases. So I would say that really it has no assets invested in the business at all on a net basis, net tangible assets. So theoretically, returns on on capital and things like that would be um you know capable of being infinite. Let's look at the cash flow statement. Anything that sticks out to you here? Um I wonder what that other is. Um No. Really nothing sticks out to me except the same thing we talked about before. You see a shift in the business um that happens later uh where the um it starts to generate 2015 which is when it starts to consistently generate net income it also starts to generate both cash flow from operations positive and free cash flow positive we would almost never invest in a company that on a consistent basis is cash flow from operations negative um that's very risky and this company was negative in that respect not just on a free cash flow basis but actually just not even generating cash flow from operations meaning it was burning cash all the time um before 2015 and then after that it's consistently profitable on that basis. In terms of free cash flow, we can see the average is about for the last 3 years has been pretty steady in at about 1 million. So, your stock without the cash is trading about at 10 times cash flow from operations, which is in this case about the same as free cash flow because there's no um investment in the business. Uh so you're like a PE of 10, so to speak, and uh, an EV to to cash flow from operations from free cash flow. They're the same thing, basically, of about 5, like it shows there. So I think that um, you could say the stock trades at a PE of about, as it shows, 11 here. A PE of about 10, um, if it's if you're sort of thinking the cash, you're not counting the cash at all. And if you are counting the cash, then it's more like 5. So very cheap, and it actually has been growing each year. Um, The really impressive thing, as we saw, was like the expense control because you had growth in the last um, few years of fairly small numbers in terms of revenue growth that uh, achieved meaningful increases in earnings per share um, or at least keeping it stable, which is impressive. Um, some share dilution, but it's not a huge number.
0: Yeah. So that percentage, that in you know, a percentage of revenue has really come down over time, which as you said, really shows some sort of uh, expense control. So what would be your next steps? Clearly you're interested in learning more about this company, just from the financials that you're looking at,
1: what are some things that you would want to go and investigate? Oh, I'd want to investigate about the customers and about the product because there's not a lot to go on here, but given the size of the company, the description, those things, it would seem that they probably, and this could be wrong, but you would assume they have a very small number of customers and good product economics. Um, so you would need to know if those customers are really likely to be, um, uh, reliable, um, uh, recurring business over a longer period of time. You know, um, that's what you would need to know. There's, it, and, you know, we'd have to learn about the business to know if this is really true, but just based on things like revenue growth and expense growth that we're seeing, it would just be seem hard to believe that you actually have a big increase in terms of the number of people using your product. That seems unlikely since if the period that we're looking at that's good, the revenue growth numbers are so low. Um, you have two years where it's gross about 1%. But other than that, you have years that are mostly in like the 5 to 10% range, to be honest. You know, there's like a 13 there, but the next year's a 4 So um it, it's you know nominal gdp type growth rates maybe a little bit better than that and um it, it would really be like how um much of a moat or whatever you want to call it you have with your customers how um locked in they are to things mm-hmm. got it cool uh
0: we can go back you also asked for that which is uh we could do two um international stocks this trades in Norway. Um, Bouvet, let's see, current PE 20 times. I believe this stock always kind of trades uh, at a premium or a bit higher. Um, let me trade just back to millions. 10 year Kager in revenue um, 11.6%. Assets 13%. Free cash flow 18%. Return on assets very high. Return on capital very high. All across the board uh, very high. Let's see, Bouvet provides information technology, digital communication, and enterprise management services in Norway, Sweden, and internationally. Uh, mm-hmm. The company designs, develops, and provides advisory services on IT solutions and digital communication. It was founded in 2002, beta point nine two. share turnover 10%, so an overlooked stock. Um, it's a larger mm-hmm. overlooked stock, but still overlooked and looks pretty high quality just from looking at it on quick fs what are some thoughts that you have
1: yeah so i mean it depends on how these things are being classified uh for quick FS purposes but it certainly looks like basically like a consulting or a consulting or project-based business you have very low gross margins with high stability in terms of the relationship between gross and operating margins and then high operating margins there's very little gap between the gross and operating margins um, so it looks like you're billing customers for something that you're doing on like a project basis, and then you're making money steadily. Operating margin was growing a little bit over time, but basically very stable and stuff until it seems like some changes in 2020 and 2021. You know, that's a short period of time to judge by, but it looks like there might have been some changes then. Um, much faster growing company than the one we just looked at. Uh, however, more expensive, um, obviously, uh, uh, for a little more than two times more expensive, at least by any measure that I would use to look at it. Um, This is priced about, um, if we see, we have EVA sales of like 1.9, and then we have maybe like 9% or something average EBIT margin in the past, even using recent EBIT margin. You're not talking about something that's trading at like 10 times pre-tax profit. You're talking about something that's more in the 15, the, uh, 15 to 20 type range based on what we have there. So, um it shows ev to ebit and ev to pre-tax recently at about 15 which i think is right if the current margins are normal um which isn't necessarily too expensive to pay for a company growing as fast as it is however it's slightly premium to like what the market uh tends to trade at in a long-term history kind of thing this is you know the the p that you see there is kind of accurate Based on what we're seeing, you know, a low 20s PE sounds like that's about what this company is priced at. Yeah,
0: let's historically look to see if that's what it's been priced at. No, so they've benefited from multiple expansion, at least since 2012. Uh, And the PE in 2012 was
1: 12 times, and now it's, you know, 20 times. It seems like a COVID thing. I don't know if it's exactly, uh, if it started a year before that or something. But if you look at most of the measures that we'd look at, price to sales... And PE, uh, price to sales, would be more the kind of thing that I would look at normally. It really does seem that it's the last three years or less that it's suddenly gone from having a price to sales of one or less to being two to three. Um, Very high payout ratio, by the way. So the dividend payout is very high. But this is not a U.S. stock, so it's more common in some other countries for that to look like that. Anything that sticks out to you on the balance sheet? No, I don't think there's much to worry about in terms of a balance sheet here. Um, yeah, it's about what you'd expect. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're not working the balance sheet very hard. You know, there's not financial engineering going on here that way, but otherwise there's not a lot. This is what we'd expect the business to look like, I think. Is this the type of company that you would want to see them working their
0: balance sheet harder or optimizing their balance sheet better?
1: Um. No, not necessarily. I mean, if the stock got really cheap or something, then maybe. But again, it's not a U.S. stock. So I think what they're doing is they're just going to pay out as much as they can in dividends and um and have a pretty neutral cash and debt position. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay.
0: TME, thanks for being the best, most informative investing resource out there. Thank you for listening. All right. TME. Is it even... Tencent Music Entertainment Group. Market cap, $8.5 billion. EV, $6.1 billion. Uh, Tencent Music Entertainment Group operates online music entertainment platforms to provide music streaming, online karaoke, and live streaming services in the People's Republic of China. All right. Obviously, the name gave that hint away. Current PE, 20 times. EV to sales, 1.5. Four times, 10-year median margins on EBIT, 13%. Um, let's see, revenue in 2016 was $630 million, And in 2021, $4.9 billion. Gross profit has gone up a bunch as well, from $178 million to $1.4 billion in 2021. Um, any thoughts on this? Is it hard to evaluate a business that operates um, in the PRC? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've hit some things I know nothing about. We've got, uh, you know, streaming, <laughs> we've got China, and we've got music. Um, this is not a good combination. Uh, in terms of looking at the business, you know, there's some odd things that are happening here. We could probably see that with the balance sheet. Um, we, we seem to have remarkably low returns um, relative to what we'd expect based on the margins and things like that. So there must be something strange going on with the balance sheet. Um is it a ton of goodwill? What's being captured? Nah, um, got $3 um, in goodwill. Okay, so it's basically goodwill and you also have um, cash and short-term investments, presumably. Um, we should take those together. Uh, if we take those together and then we've got investments and we don't know what that means, um, it does look like those are things that aren't uh, necessarily related to the business. Um, so it doesn't necessarily seem like they have low returns on any sort of capital or that there's actually a lot of capital in the business. So you probably want to ignore things like the return on equity and just look at the margins. And how would you evaluate the margins?
0: pull up key ratios, margins, gross Mm -hmm. margin, EBITDA margin, operating margin, Mm -hmm. free
1: cash flow margin, net margin. They are. So the free cash flow margin is very, very high. Um, In fact, it's higher than other margins, that it shouldn't be higher than. So we don't know what that is all about. Um, That's interesting. I'm not sure how that's possible without knowing more about the business, but it's exceptionally high to the point that it's a little confusing. So for instance, if you look at like EBITDA margin, you would think that presumably the free cash flow margin, EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, unless you have constant flow of working capital, which, which which wouldn't really make sense, but a constant flow that's favorable to you, so you have like float happening all the time, would be the only way that you could think about this being sustained. Um, the free cash flow margin should really be lower than EBITDA margin. Free cash flow margin is after CapEx, which is you know, where as a DNA is added back to EBITDA and it's after taxes. Um, there's also the interest part of it, but uh, it's higher here, the free cash flow margin than the EBITDA margin every single year or the same basically. So that's extremely unusual. Uh, that could be caused by having very high revenue growth in some sort of float. It seems Unclear that that's what's really happening though here, because if you look, the EBITDA margin is still below the free cash flow margin, even in a year where they had relatively low year-over-year growth in revenue. Um, so I don't know exactly what to make of that, uh, without knowing more about the business. You know, it's it's really hard to figure that out. What's going on there? Let's look at a stock chart. I, I'm curious to see if
0: they've uh, participated, and you know, the general Chinese stocks that have sold off uh yeah okay well there you go right here um we could look at a all chart and it looks like in uh beginning of 2021 it was a 26 six dollar stock and now it's five dollars today so mm-hmm. wonder what happened there
1: yeah and i guess um but yeah uh, based on the record that we see we could look at quarterly but based on the record we see um it, you know it in terms of the financial results, it would suggest that there's something else that's the reason why it's sold off, which could be related to the concerns mm-hmm. about you know, Chinese stocks that way. Well, that's a pretty easy explanation. The revenue growth has been negative for the last three quarters. So, mm-hmm. if you see. In fact, it's been quite largely negative. Um, gross margin, though, has held up pretty remarkably well. Um, so, that's not... Uh you know it I don't know. I mean, obviously, we don't know the business. It's pretty scary to go from having grown thirty percent a year for several quarters in a row to then there's only one quarter in between where you grow nine percent year over year and then you're you've got negative revenue growth and accelerating negative revenue growth um That's pretty dramatic, so we've talked about this with any of these like covid type businesses and stuff like that where they have this rapid growth and then they um shrink and there's almost no year there's almost no quarter in between um you go from you know Peloton or something rapid uh revenue growth to rapid revenue contraction almost overnight um so this could be something like that where it was uh driven a lot by covid mm-hmm.
0: got it tough to value without knowing more I guess right uh box. have you looked at box then? recently at all butler yeah. national corporation 71 million million dollar market cap 102 million dollar ev pe seven times even free cash flow well that's uh kind of irrelevant ev to sales 1.4 times and uh 10-year median margins on EBIT 5.7 percent not irrelevant but just it's 67 times ev to
1: free cash flow um so i don't know if that's a covert related thing or what yeah so they're They're two very hot businesses right now. They modify planes. So um, they modify planes from one type of use to another. Um, So basically overhauling planes um, to change what the use is for it. Um, Sometimes they have licenses to do this and stuff. So it's somewhat regulated business that way. It's not a huge number. But uh, an example, what I was saying is why those are hot businesses is some of that business is probably driven by Ukraine, the war um, a bit there, um, because they probably do some work for government stuff, um, uh, among other things. Uh, And then you have the, they manage a casino, technically, Um, the state of Kansas, you know, technically is the one that does all of those things, has four casinos in the state, and uh, it's technically all run by the state uh, in the sense that it's owned by the state but managed um, by those companies. Um, effectively that's like having a license to run a casino and then ha- giving a certain part of the your revenue to the state. Um, and they've just gotten a sports book started because uh, uh, Kansas has allowed that now, so that means that each of the casino operators will get to operate a uh, sportsbook, presumably in the casino, I would guess, but certainly they're allowed to do, like, sites across the state too. Um, so there'll, there'll actually be a, a bunch of them in the state of Kansas. Um, it's not limited to sportsbooks just in the casino. So I don't know if there, there could be 100 or 200 or something in the state probably. Um, and then they also bought out their partner in the casino, which had been a long time till they did that, and they also... Um, bought the building and land um, through a mortgage instead of leasing it like they had before.
0: Uh, Dodge City, Kansas. You ever been there, Jeff? I
1: have. We've been to
0: this casino. We um, have been to this casino. So what mm-hmm. were your thoughts on the overall casino? This
1: was back in, what, 2020 maybe, I believe? hmm Yeah. Uh. You know, d- it doesn't have much value other than as a casino authorized by the state and the state saying that you can only have four of them. Um, you know, very minimal value other than that. Um, I think that's why they picked the places that they picked so that the, the, the state did so that the casinos wouldn't really overlap in terms of competition with each other. It's sort of Kansas is basically like a, a square anyway, or like a rectangle anyway. And then you divide it up pretty much into squares. Um, the, we could, we could look at some of the issues with this. So this company does, um, earnings calls and you can listen to them every quarter quarter. Um, especially you could like read the transcripts um, and they've done them for a long time. It's a really small company. As you can see, share turnover is low, right? This says 6% here. Market cap is only 71 million. Very low. Um, if we look at the income statement, you can see there's some issues with um, why one reason why shareholders would be annoyed. You can see down there at the bottom shares diluted went from 59 million in 2013 to 75 million most recently. Um that dilution is really I think what annoys shareholders um among other things. It, the company always talks about spinning off uh the business into two parts and says maybe in a few years or something, but I don't know that they'll ever do it. They did do some of the things recently that they talked about like um you know, buying out their partner and, and um, ownership of the, the property themselves. Um, so there's all sorts of things to like about it, I suppose, on a quantitative level. Um, it's not that expensive. And people do like these casinos. And if you split the two parts up, the sum of the parts would be worth more than the businesses. Yeah.
0: It's a weird situation because they have this aviation part of their business and then they have something that's completely unrelated uh the casino mm-hmm. management business i mean is that i mean would you like to see them spin off the aviation business or you know have uh the two business lines uh in two separate entities
1: uh i don't know they're very small both of them so i think it'd be hard to do a spin-off that would get a good result for them and the costs involved with all this um, the the probably the best thing would be to sell each of the parts to a different buyer without management and um their contracts and things attached to it. That would probably realize the best um value for investors. Um sp- you could split it up or spin it off, but we're talking about I mean it would probably be a very attractive spin off. We're talking about something that would be a uh seventy million dollar market cap. So even if you assumed that both of them are valued equally let's say or something like that you're talking about some very tiny stocks um you know uh they're, they're both also kind of lumpy businesses to some extent um although much more so the the avionics business is compared to the um the casino there but yeah, they appeal to two completely different investors. I'm not sure what the investor base for this company really is or what it looks like. Um, from the earnings calls, it's all obviously um, individual investors who probably own the stock for a while who talk on those. So, I mean, I listen to those things every quarter. I look at the company that way, but it's something that I don't think I'll invest in. Why is that?
0: Just because you don't like some things management has done, because you don't like that there's two parts of the business?
1: Why is it something that you don't think
0: you'll ever invest in?
1: Uh, Yeah. Um I, I think unless there's a change on that side, then uh, I probably won't invest in it.
0: Got it. Um
1: let's look at
0: next stock tile. Interface Inc. and then we'll look at Copart. Uh Interface Inc. Ticker T I L E. Uh market cap six hundred thirty-four million. Uh they do have debt. EV is one billion. Uh, price to earnings, 10 times. Uh, let's see, what do they do? Modular fl- flooring company designs, produces and sells modular carpet products, primarily in the Americas, Europe, and the Asia Pacific. Looking at the return of asset capital, looks uh, like a pretty cyclical uh, from that perspective. Uh, EV to sales, 0.8 times. 10-year median margins on EBIT, 9.2%. Ten-year Kager on uh, revenue has gone from $932 million to $1.2 billion in 2021, which represents 2.3% um, uh, operating margin. Just absolutely looks like kind of all over the place. You have 9.2% and then it jumps up to about 12% and then back down to 7%. Um, any thoughts on a business like this? Gross margins aren't too all over the place
1: yeah um some things that stand out is it says where they're headquartered. I don't know where the the um plants are and everything, but uh it says it's headquartered in a part of the country, the United States, where there's also a bunch of other companies involved in flooring stuff, so it says Atlanta Georgia, but there's a lot of flooring companies around there um and then also another thing that'd be interesting is you know depending on what they do, how much of that is affected by um energy. Uh, petroleum-type input costs and things like that. Um, That would interest me, you know, looking at the record of 2020-2021 as compared to 2019, because you see like on a gross margin basis, one of their best years was 2019, and one of the um, not-so-good years was 2021, though they've had worse. Um, Seems totally cyclical. Um, You know, the revenue is up, but on like an average basis, it's hard to see if it is up meaningfully at all uh gross profit same sort of thing where we've there is some progress over time but it's not a ton so you probably would look at it on like a average earnings basis over a long period of time or a return on equity basis or something like that um return equity is a little hard because it's um leveraged i think it says debt to equity right now is one can you scroll up so i can see the market cap and the ev um what they look like
0: yeah, market cap six hundred thirty-four million EV, uh,
1: one billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we trust that number, that means that uh, the um, operating profit, you know, so so debt is like between two point five and three times operating profit um and operating profit isn't that far from record operating profit they had a slightly better year in 2019 but on like a three-year average or something we're talking about about three times debt to uh operating profit we could look at the cash flow statement to see if they're actually able to generate cash flow from operations in line with like operating profit or at least EBITDA. um yeah i mean it's not the, the cash flow from operations part isn't too bad that way over the entire period, it's it's not as good. You can actually see, uh, though it's very lumpy. So you know, without getting out a calculator, I could be wrong. And cumulatively, it could be close to EBITDA and, and cash flow from operations could be close. But it certainly is not very stable that way. Um, so looking at the last three years, for instance, you know, 2020 is kind of your average part of that trailing 12 months. You had a big decrease in cash flow from operations, almost to the point that there's not a lot of free cash flow generation. Um, So uh, it's, let's see, um, it's maybe nine times cash flow from operations or something like that if we take EV. So mostly it's a leverage thing. I'd say it's pretty cyclical, pretty, um, and then pretty leveraged. So it's going to work out well if you, are right about the cycle, and um you're okay with the fact that you're betting on the common stock, which is leveraged, and so you're gonna make your money uh, on that basis um, so like if we knew more about how the business works, if you knew that energy costs were going to come down or you knew that it was a good time for you know um housing or whatever things might drive it, um, then you know you could do well, but I think like long term it doesn't look all that cheap compared to like a long-term basis, it could be if you maintain this level of leverage forever, you know? So like we're looking, Mm -hmm. it says price to book 1.8, return on equity 15.5. That doesn't sound too bad. It's not, you know, you have a high single digit type earnings yield. If you put those two numbers together, that is you take 15.5 and divide by 1.8, but that's achieved with a lot of leverage. The underlying returns in the business aren't anywhere near that. So, um, so, you know, I think as a shorter term thing, you would be betting on it more cyclically and based on the fact that it's leveraged, which some people like that, you know. Uh, let's look at
0: Copart, which is a stock that you know well. Uh, great book, mm-hmm. Junk to Gold, written about yes, Copart. Market cap, yeah. $27.8 billion. Uh, EV, $26.5 billion. Currently trading about uh, 25 to 26 times PE. EV to sales, uh, Jeff, always trading at a very high price. EV to sales, eight times. 10-year median margins on EBIT, 32.2%. EV EB to free cash flow, 35 uh, times. 10-year Kager in revenue, 12%. Assets, about 16%. Free cash flow, 11%. And EPS, 22%. I am rounding up. Uh, revenue mm-hmm. has gone from $924 million in 2012 to $2.6 billion in 2021, uh, that return on equity number, very high, 31% for a 10-year median return, very high. Um, you know, looking at the gross margins, um, very high. Operating margins, also really high, and um, not the most stable, but also, like, you know, pretty good. Uh, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on Copart?
1: Well, operating margin has expanded a lot in, uh, since the last couple of years. Um, you know, it, it had been much more historically around thirty percent or so, uh, and now it seems to have jumped to almost forty percent. Uh, stock's not all that expensive, except the the reason why it's not all that expensive is because let's see, in six of the last seven years, it's grown by you know we'll, we'll take the nineteen percent and say that's virtually twenty percent, but. If we do that, then it's grown by, let's say, 19% or more, around 20% uh, in every single year of that period, with just one exception. Um, certainly, if we take like an average basis, it's grown by way faster than 20% earnings per share growth, even over the last 10 years, the average is 22%. But it's not just that the average is 22%, it's how stable that average has been over time in terms of the earnings per share growth. So I think that kind of explains the stock's performance over time and why it's so expensive as a stock. Um Having said that, it's not all that expensive. I mean, it certainly looks a lot better than other companies that trade at EBD, EBITDA of 18 or 26. You know, you can find food companies and things that trade in the same range and that don't grow at all. So it's not really expensive on the basis of really high quality companies. It's expensive for what we pay for companies. And so, you know, it, it would be hard for us to imagine buying a company like this.
0: Would you have to wait for the business to come down to being like 15 times earnings to potentially be interested in it? I mean, it's a company that you would like to own, right? If the price was right. Of course, size constraints and stuff like that are outside of what we focus on. But generally speaking, it's a industry and a business that you think uh, is uh, a good dominant business, right? An industry.
1: Yeah, so what's happening here is if you look, you have the gross margin and you have the operating margin. This is one of the easiest ways to look at the difference. The gross margin is 50%. The operating margin is a little over 42%. So it's that tiny, tiny spread like we we're talking about with Visa. Um, you know, if I had to own one of these companies, I'd probably own Copart, not Visa. Why? Um, because the size of this business is so much smaller. Um, they're both doing the same thing; they're taking sort of a percentage. Copart is getting is having more show up as revenue. And so that throws off kind of the, the margin comparison somewhat. But they're basically operating a marketplace in which they're taking a small um, percentage of the profit and it's growing over time, what they're getting. Um, Visa is so huge and Copart is compared to that relatively small that I'd probably be more interested in Copart that way. And then also Copart is trading at like lower price to sales and and ratios like that too. Um, not low ones, but lower Um, I don't think it's a crazy price for it or something like that. Uh, You know, I, I can't complain that it's overpriced, but, you know, it's not a value stock. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Do they ever buy back stock? Yeah. They've bought back stock. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. In uh,
0: 2012, they had 263 million shares outstanding. And then, uh, today they have about 240 million. It looks like.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So a stock that you would like to buy out of all the ones that uh, we have looked at. If you're forced to buy one of the ones that we've looked at today, GoPart would be at the top of that list.
1: Yeah, I I would say so. Even at today's price, um, I'm not excited about today's price, but yes, if I was forced to buy something, yeah. Let's look at another micro cap that a
0: lot of investors follow at least on like Microcap Club and stuff like that. Leet Corp, market cap 132 million, enterprise value 127 million. Um, uh, what do they do? Well, they design, develop, market, and distribute personal protective equipment for participants of motorsports and leisure activities worldwide. Um, so think like helmets and I guess armor, if you will, mm-hmm. for being on like a dirt bike or uh, four wheeler stuff like that um uh, they've grown a lot recently look at that growth from 2020 jeff to 2021 uh 39 million in 2020 and 72 million in 2021 uh gross Mm -hmm. profit went from 17 million to 31 million um what are your thoughts on this this would be it'd be tough to evaluate like that operating profit like what's normal going forward right it looks like from 2018 19 20 um it was 2 million and then went to 6 million in 2020 and then it just exploded to 17 million in 2021.
1: Yeah. I think first of all you probably aren't surprised I'm going to zero in on the fact that this company's founded in 2001 is headquartered yeah in South Africa. Um but where is it listed? Is it just over the counter in the US but it's actually listed in South Africa? Um so that'd be one thing I'd be interested in. If it's an over the counter stock in the, and if it's just over the counter in the U.S. and it has a listing in its home country, and the share turnover is 25%, then it might be less overlooked than it appears to be. Um, so that's interesting. The other thing that's that obviously the big thing that stands out if you look at this ten-year um, uh, summary as very unusual you'll see is the gross margin. So the gross margin is good, or you know it's fine. But what's interesting about it is that the gross margin has declined virtually every year. It increased slightly from 2012 to 2013, which actually was the year in which the revenue was down. But what's interesting is that you consistently have, like 2014, you have revenue growth, but gross margin declines. Then 2017, big revenue growth, 23% revenue growth. And yet margin, gross margin is down 3%. 2018, big revenue growth and margin is slightly up. Uh then pretty good, and then margins down. Very good and margins down, and then incredibly good up 88% and margins down on gross basis. And yet, in those years, generally, I won't bore you with each year, the operating margin is generally up, up, up. Very interesting pattern. Very unusual pattern. Um, and so I'd have to read about it to understand what the company is doing. It certainly seems like... So they talk about distributing and stuff like that. Are they acquiring things? and doing things in uh, different areas that's greatly mixing the product, uh, the, that you're greatly changing the product mix, it certainly seems like there's got to be huge changes in sales mix here. Um, otherwise, they don't really understand what's happening. Uh, so for instance, you have, you know, everything about it looks good if you take the most recent year in the sense of like, okay, 43% gross margin is not a problem. 23% operating margin, the gap between those things for a company this size is not a big deal. That is the spending that much on SGNA not a big deal. Returns are really good all that. It's the pattern over a long period of time that's kind of fascinating that way. And so you'd have to really understand what that means. It would seem like you're probably doing some sort of thing where you just you've like added to what you're distributing or acquired things. Um we could look at like cash flow statement or something like that to get some more ideas on that, but okay. Um can you give it to me in thousands? sure yeah yeah so um you are generating some cash flow from operations uh this is complicated and I don't want to sound negative on things here um the pattern though is very unusual it's growing very quickly so this may not be a problem but in terms of when we talk about earnings quality this is a situation in which the earnings quality in terms of the uh, one of the general checks about earnings quality you can do is compare cash flow from operations to reported items like net income Um, it would seem that usually you would want let's say cash flow from operations to not be all that different than than um, operating income EBIT so if we look here Recent cash flow from operations uh, from 2017 to 2021, the lowest was about um, $900,000, let us say, 800000 And then the highest was 2.8. but it's in that range. Um, so, you know, so roughly about the last five years. So you're in a range of one to three or something. If we look at the um, overview, we could look at the operating profit. You'll notice the operating profit has exploded recently and it's much uh, less stable than the cash flow from operations um the cash flow from operations works closer to the operating profit in previous years and then declined a lot and if we look at the cash flow statement we can see why that is it's because of changes in working capital um so they've added a lot to working capital so for instance you can see that the entirety of their increase in 2021 and actually or we could say the last 12 months either one works um, went directly into working capital. Uh, so everything they earned actually reported as earnings. You can see like um, $12 million. Um That went into an increase uh, in working capital, which is why their cash from operations generation was lower. And then when you factor in the CapEx, actually some more money went into this business rather than coming out in the form of cash. If we look at the balance sheet, we can see what that is um, in terms of what items have gone up a lot. And it would seem the items that have gone up our inventories and accounts receivable, which is what we would expect. Um, accounts receivable have gone up even more than inventory, actually. Um, inventory has gone up less than three times. Accounts receivable has gone up um, about four times. So that's not that weird in terms of your increase in your sales. However, I would point out that it is faster than your actual increase in your sales because we know that the sales increase was only like 100% or so over the time. Maybe I... times and we're talking about items that are growing three to four times so again sales mixings they've definitely changed uh you can see that accounts receivable just exploded in the last two years it never went up before then likewise inventories are pretty flat and then they exploded in the last few years so there's something about the business model that i don't really understand about what's really changed in the last two years but there's been a huge increase in accounts receivable and inventories so a big increase in the um in the, the uh, business that way. Accounts payable, though, also is increased. So it's not like they've necessarily tied up all that mo- much more on a um a net basis in terms of what what's tied up in the business. However, I would point out that over the last couple of years, the money hasn't really like been generating free cash flow for them to take out or anything like that. It's all gone back into the business. You can tell that. So they've had a rapid increase in their business. Um, With lower gross margins and higher operating margins, and it hasn't yet turned to cash. But when it gets to a flat growth rate in the future, the expectation would be then you'd see a bunch of free cash flow for the business. Um, So the thing that's sort of that you want to think about, though, is um, they've been making more money, which is good. And that's what they should be. That's the number you should be trying to maximize. So over a long period of time, it would make sense to try to maximize like operating profit and These decisions may make a great deal of sense in that. Having said that, if you're increasing inventory, increasing receivables uh, faster, that is, these things than sales, and you're increasing uh, and you're lowering your gross margin, that is a possibility that that's helping you sell more things. Um, If you're slower in collecting payment and your pricing is a bit lower um, and you have a wide selection of things on hand, that can all help drive sales um which is fine that can be a good strategy to drive sales um it's just that that may help explain why you've been able to drive sales as well as you have uh, also the increase in the revenue and stuff was happening from before covid um it accelerated a lot during covid but it was happening before then um so i'd mostly try to figure out like what's different about the second half of these 10 years than the first half they only have one year where they grew at all in the first half um The business size looks very stable in the first half, and it 's lumpy in terms of like revenues down a bit then it grows then it 's down a bit, but you 're in about the same place so you have very flat but wobbly you know five year period in the beginning, and then you have this very rapid trajectory of the last five years, so to see if something has drastically changed because if you get back to where you were in the first five years of the twenty tens um then you you 've paid way too much for this stock if you buy it today, but if it looks like it 's going to be for the last few years then it's a good deal. Um, And then the other question is just like what it looks like when it does slow down because it is increasing things about the balance sheet and stuff so rapidly that it'll be interesting to see what happens, how much inventory they have on hand and things like that when um, they do get to a slower growth um, situation. But if you grow at the rates that they've been growing from 2017, it doesn't even matter that much if you turn it into cash right now you buy the stock and y- even if you don't get any free cash flow for the next five years or something, if you're growing the business 20% to 90% a year, then you're going to be such a bigger company down the road that you've invested in that when it eventually converts some of it to free cash flow in some form, it's going to be a lot just because the company is so much bigger. So it's not saying you necessarily have to worry about that you're not generating a lot of free cash flow right now, especially because um, it's not like they, this company has debt and stuff. Let's look at uh the stock chart. I know that the stock is obviously gone
0: um pretty crazy. So it looks like yeah, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen we're in the two dollar range and now it's 10X, ten x and at twenty two bucks uh per mm-hmm. share.
1: So is that quite the run? Yeah, I mean it, but let's look at the um quick FS Let's see. It's okay. If we look there. Um you know, you got a ten X in operating margin in about the same period. You know? Mm-hmm. There was really no EBIT profit before about twenty seventeen. The only time in which they really started turning one that could be at all meaningful is twenty eighteen. So it's just three years it's gone up ten times. So I don't even know that the stock has necessarily gone up all that much different than the EBIT um of it has. And that's when you see how much leverage a business has like this in terms of uh sales volume relative to the the size of the operation you know if you have a two percent margin then you're uh and you go to a 20 percent margin then you have the explosion that you saw there uh earnings per share is up 50 times in the last five years is this a company that you would be interested in too fast too much asset growth uh
0: south africa stuff like that on the balance sheet would worry
1: you i i don't know enough about what has changed um in the, uh, in the last few years versus what it looked like before then. So it would really have to be how different is the business from earlier than it is now. Is it just that we're seeing the same name and stuff, but they've completely changed their strategy of the last five years or six years or whatever versus the all the years before then? Because you can see on a bunch of different measures that this was not a company that was you know, even turning a profit much less like creating a lot of value or something up until the last, you know, at most six years, five, six years. So it all would depend on if there's been a drastic change in strategy and whether I like that strategy and could count on it in the future, you know? Cool. Well,
0: I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Uh, thank you so much for sending your stock picks in. If this is the first time you are tuning in with Jeff and myself, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching uh, if you're interested in learning more about our um, money management services, reach out to me at Andrew at FocusCompounding.com. You could also go to the Invest with Us tab at FocusCompounding.com uh, to get more information on that. But uh, generally speaking, the best way to start that is to reach out to me at Andrew at FocusCompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Thank you so much for all the support. We will see you next week. Take care.